Hi, this is Akash Pandey, and you are listening to South Asians Love Rap. Stories from people who look like me set to the music that moves them. I started this project partly because I used to be a teacher, and I miss forcing people to listen to me. But really, it's because I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s, and I didn't hear stories from people who look like me. Nowadays, I see more South Asians emerging as comedians, doctors, food critics, even secure teenagers, which I'm impressed by because I certainly was not one. And I'm curious to hear their stories. I, I, I want to know about the music that they've found meaningful because I didn't know who the hell I was growing up, but I, I do know that music and, and hip-hop in particular helped me. It allowed me to see the world more clearly and understand who I was. And I know everyone's different, but stories about music, especially personal ones, they they still get me going. And that's the plan. I want to share stories from people who look like me that's set to the music that moves them. Our first guest today is an OG. I, I can't think of a better way to launch than with him. Joseph Patel. I'll take you right to the introduction I did with him live, and, and you'll really mostly hear his voice the rest of the way. I, I hope you enjoy. Joseph Patel is a documentarian, a producer, a hip-hop head, a Bay Area native. His work as a hip-hop journalist graced the pages of Vibe, Herb, among other prominent publications. He once said of De La Soul's emergence from the Long Island suburbs that it made it possible for cities like Atlanta to eventually spawn their own hip hop communities. We have Joseph to thank for shining a light on those communities as the creator producer of the excellent My Block series on MTV in the mid 2000s, which took us to Houston, uh, Memphis, Virginia Beach, among other areas we don't always associate with hip hop culture. He's currently working on producing Questlove's directorial debut on the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969, also known as Black Woodstock. Uh, thank you for joining, really excited to have you. Thank you, thanks, that was a good intro. So you mentioned a little bit about your parents, and I actually wanted to start there. Just um, if you could share, you know, where, where are your parents from, and, and do you identify as South Asian? Yeah, of course. Um, my parents um, are both Gujarati. My dad came to America to go to engineering school in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Was, was music uh, playing in your house? Is that something that they cared about or how did you get connected with music? Not, not really, not at all actually. Um, although my dad was an engineer and we were living in Fremont, California and um, he started a Hindi movie rental service out of, our, out of our garage. And so he would order Hindi movies and rent them to anybody in the community for a dollar. Because he was working and because my mother was working, I was home uh, by myself people would come over and, and, and I'd let them in the garage and they'd pick which movies they wanted and, and pay me $5 and then leave. And that was sort of like, I, I attended the garage store. So music wasn't that prominent. Certainly my mother liked music, but she liked what was on the radio. Uh, my father liked Bollywood songs and, and Indian movies were always playing in our house. My birth name is not Joseph. My birth name is Monish. And um, when I was uh, eight years old, I wanted to change my name because this is basically uh, America in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And it was really hard to go a single day without being terrorized about being Indian and getting mixed up for all sorts of things at the time you know it was a lot of you fucking iranian and it was just like okay in fact one of my earliest memories is my mom me going shopping with my mom i think i, I must have been five or six years old and being accosted uh in a department store and this woman in her face yelling uh you fucking iranian go home you fucking iranian go home and my, my mother grabbing my, my hand and leading me out of the store. And 
when I was eight, I was changing schools and I asked uh, to change my name. And my parents, who were just trying to fit in and survive themselves, their names at work were Mike and Paula. And they just, you know, it's what you did to survive back then. And when I got to college, uh, which is when I had my real sort of cultural awakening of my identity and how it fit into the scope of other non-white identities is when I realized I, I fucked up. I should have never changed my name. And, um, and, and I was writing for uh, like zines and newsletters at the time and, uh, and doing a radio show uh, on, on the college radio station at KDBS at UC Davis. And, and I just, and I thought it was too late to change my name back. Um, although in hindsight, it probably wouldn't have been, but at the time, you know, everything in the present day is the most urgent and important thing. So I, um, I, I legally changed my name to Joseph Monish Patel. Uh, so I could sort of reclaim back of, of my original name, but still progress forward with my, with the name that I chose. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I grew up in like a very different era, but I also grew up around mostly white kids in Santa Cruz. And I know what that experience was like, but I had this huge Indian community in the Bay Area that my mom was tapped into. And so there was a way for me to connect with people who had similar names. And um, yeah. it was a striking moment though, when I got to Berkeley freshman year, there were six Akashas in my unit, <laughs> in my building. Also, you brought up the seventies. My dad has reminded me many times. He was like, Carter's America was very different. You know, and, and whenever there's a economic downturns, I think of uh, what he shared with me about that time, because he also has stories of being at a gas station and being called a sand, you know, and uh, I call that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, he's like, always remember, you know, when when the economy turns, uh, people like us become targets. And yeah, and, uh, and that's that's a reality in history over and over again. And so yeah. I'm part of a sort of larger creative South Asian community here. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, there's a little bit of embarrassment on my part for, for having the name Joseph and, and knowing that I changed my name. And, and I think part of it is just, I grew up in a different era and, you know, I'm of a certain age and it's just, you know, in hindsight, it's, it was just survival, right? Like, like, Hasan Minaj has a has a, a bit about about changing names and, and getting people to pronounce your name correctly. And yes, that's it. Yes. Hey, look, look, when I first kind of, you know, started doing comedy, people were like, you should change your name. And I'm like, I'm not going to change my name. If you can pronounce Ansel Elgort, you can pronounce Hasan Minaj. There's an actor just named Ansel Elgort, and we all just walk around pronouncing it uh -huh. completely normally. Yeah. And what do they do at Starbucks? What well, do they do? At Starbucks, I just go by Timothy Chalamet. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's good. I just but, keep it simple. Yeah, and, and, and I watch that, right and it, it like really hits close to home because like I'm probably, I mean, I'm older than he is by a lot and, and maybe just slightly younger than his parents. But I think it's just a different time period. And, and it's one of the more thrilling things to me now is just seeing, you know, how many people in the public space, especially in entertainment and media, um, who are South Asian, have their, have their birth names and, and have forced people to conform to their identity as opposed to the other way around. And that's, that's really amazing to see. I got into music probably as a kid, just playing football and baseball with the kids in the cul-de-sac. You know, the first time I heard Run DMC, I was just like, oh my God, what is this? Van Halen, you know, hearing that out of, out of a car in my neighborhood, it was just like, what is this? But it wasn't really until I got to, to high school and I met um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Noel, who was a real music geek. He was like a skater kid music geek and he just brought me into this world. We became obsessed with music and music became the gateway to everything, right? So it was artwork and poetry and literature and it shaped my worldview. I was really into like, you know, indie goth shit and, and, and hip hop and 
skate music and punk and I started to, to dress a certain way and go to shows and and my my parents hated that and um and but it was the thing that really sort of like shaped my worldview from 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 like eighth and ninth grade on and and how are you I mean it's not the streaming era or certainly the, the era I grew up in which was LimeWire and downloading all kinds of stuff so like how are you getting this stuff and uh, what was that was it hard to track down no I mean we had we you know we had some of the best music stores in in the world in Rasputin's and Amoeba on Tuesday in the summer we would take Bart to Berkeley and you know buy the new releases um or or go go record shopping and 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 pick out things that we we hadn't seen before and um listen to them pour over the liner notes look at the artwork look at all the credits I, I don't say one is better than the other because it's just different now but that's how that's how when I say music shaped our worldview, it was like design. I didn't know what design was until I was listening to New Order and pouring over their records. And it's like, oh, Peter Seville, he's a designer. What does a designer do? Right. So it was just that was the my entryway into sort of all that stuff. And then it was sort of like towards the end of high school, beginning of college, that it was it, it became a sort of equal friendship, music trading friendship. My tastes were a little bit different than his. And so I was really into like hip hop stuff. Um, and he was really into like Bell and Sebastian. Um, but yeah, he was really instrumental in, in, in stoking the fires for me of, of, of just music that was different and artistic and creative. College Davis, uh, the first thing I did was I sought out the, the college radio station. Davis's college radio station is this sort of like secret uh, hideaway gem of a place. Um, 5,000 watts in the middle of California. It's almost commercial level, right? So it's a small little station, college radio, but 5,000 watts means it could go as far as Nevada uh, on the east and as far south as like Bakersfield and as far west as, as Berkeley. But also the music director at the station, this woman, Marta Aldeas, um, had created a, an incredible, incredible music library there. I'd say, I don't know, like 10,000, 15,000 pieces of vinyl. The jazz section in particular was, Marta's specialty was, was jazz. And she, she was just, a, she's, she, I mean, she's a brilliant, brilliant human being. And so I listened to KDBS when I got to college my freshman year and the two shows I really were drawn to, one was done by a black woman named, her, her DJ name was Voodoo Child. And the other one was a, a rap show done by Jeff Chang, DJ Zen. I, I'm going to really try not to interrupt too often, but for those of you who don't know, Jeff Chang is best known for his 2005 book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip Hop Generation. It's the first book about hip hop I read that I remember really impacting me. And I hear right now he's working on a uh, 15th year anniversary version for young people, which is rad. I, I, if I was still teaching, I would definitely make my students read that. Um, so Jeff Chang, now back to Joseph. So I went to the radio station to go just go hang out and Jeff became sort of my mentor. And so when I'm going to the radio station, I started volunteering, started hanging out at Jeff's show, uh, at, at Voodoo Child's show, looking through the stacks of records. Then I started seeing these other people there who were looking for some of the same records and were also hip hop dudes. And they were hanging out at Jeff's show. And one of them was uh, Josh Davis, DJ Shadow, who lived in Davis, was also a freshman there at the same time I was a freshman. Um, the other, the other guy was Chief XL, um, Xavier Mosley, who is part of Black Delicious. Uh, another guy, Tom Shimura, who was from Berkeley. And we just started seeing each other and using the, the radio station library as our own personal music library. And we just, you know, and then we became friends and Jeff was sort of the ringleader of all of that. 
there were these listening rooms. We'd just go to the radio station and just pull records and listen to them. And we would do that every week for like four years. It's easy to imagine now because everything's online, but like just being led purely by your curiosity and, and just being able to follow this trail or this album cover looks interesting. Let me put this record and being able to listen to it without having to buy it. Right. And, and finding something and being like, Oh, I like this. Who plays on it? Oh, these guys, let me go find records from these guys. It just was like hours and hours every Friday and Saturday night. And, and we started to do it as a group. And, and that's how we sort of formed our, our, our Soul Science Collective. minority we are a part of the loud minority and as such we are a part of those concerned with change so that has sort of a lot of meaning um to me that's a record that i didn't know about until i heard josh play it in a listening room one night I had heard it through the walls and I'm like, what is that? And Jeff was breaking it down for us. And I looked at the album cover and I'm just like, Frank Foster, what, I don't, in the loud minority. And then I'm listening to it. And I'm just like, oh man. And then I'd pull that record again. And then I dubbed it onto a tape and I brought it home and I'm listening to it. And it's also a song of liberation. And, and what's happening at the time for me in, the, in, the, in, the, in 1990, 91, 91, I think, is, is I'm at college and I'm having this awakening about um, what it means to be uh, South Asian, what it means to be non-white. It's the era of multiculturalism on college campuses. I've got an activist mentor in Jeff Chang. I've got this crew of friends. One's a white dude, hip hop producer who makes one of the best albums in the world. One is Xavier Mosley, Chief Excel. Uh, a black hip hop producer in the vein of a Pete Rock or or a Premier or a Large Professor, just genius ear for music. One is a half Japanese dude named Tom Shimura who raps, but raps incredibly well. Um, later, Latif, you know, who's a mixed race Bay Area Oakland kid whose mother was one of the first black women to graduate from Harvard. There's marches and protests happening on campus about the education program. There's a, a newspaper being distributed by a black activist uh, student organization called the Third World Forum that is con- it's basically uh, an echo of what was happening in the late 60s and showing how the, the cultural liberation for black folks is a worldwide struggle. And, and here is this song that is not only a great break, but is, is, is this song of, of black liberation. And, and then it just, it just was a, a synthesis of so much that was happening at the time for me. And later it gets sampled by DJ Shadow in In Flux. Seeing and hearing him discover that record and then hearing that sample pop up is like, okay, this is it's just such a microcosm of what was happening for me. And what was really what was really happening in my life at the time was this again, you know, understanding that I had changed my name and I and I feeling regret about that. But also what was starting to happen is, you know, when my parents immigrated to this country at a time when the model minority myth is being being authored and uh for a lot of my adolescence what you think is successful is a white definition of success and assimilation is trying to fit in and what i started to realize around my as soon as i got to college and being with 
other kids from, from all backgrounds was that, oh, being South Asian is being non-white. And, and my, my struggle and, and where I should center myself is with other non-white people. And, you know, I was wearing a Malcolm X hat as a, as a South Asian. And I had some Indian kids, friends of mine, who were like, oh, you're just trying to be black. And, I, and what it was, and I didn't have the language at the time, what I, I think what I was trying to articulate at the time is the South Asian experience, my identity is, does not have to be rooted in whiteness. It, 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 it's rooted more in, in blackness because Indians aren't, don't come to this country unless the black struggle makes it possible, right? And then the other, the flip side of this, my mom was born and raised in Uganda. And so all of these things are starting to shape in my head around that time. Um, yeah, it was just a sort of, you know, I think college campuses are, are, are important for those things as much as they are for your formal education, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think that's such an important experience to like choose those types of outfits and be given that backlash. Because I think back on that too, like wearing Malcolm X t-shirt, uh, Black Panther Party t-shirt I picked up and Telegraph Avenue and like brought back to Santa Cruz and was wearing really proudly and people being like rubbed the wrong way by it or being like, yeah. you're black. You think you just want to be black. And I was like, no, I don't. Um, but I didn't know how to respond to it at the time. I also just love the, I, I didn't know this song, but I just love the, the phrase, the loud minority. And I think it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, which is like, we're not just going to be quiet. We're not just going to sit on the sidelines. Like we have an identity. And, and the fact that at that time you were forming your identity and it was a song that connected and, and made you feel um, rooted in that like struggle and that fight is, is powerful. Um, yeah. Also just like her, like she's given a speech. So it's parts of the song is like the speech that she's given and people being like, yeah, like it's just got like that feeling of like collective struggle. getting a show uh, actually the summer before my sophomore year and then Xavier got a show um, and we just sort of formed this little click in terms of earning that spot I'm sure it was pretty competitive right like hard to get a spot on the on the radio station sort of like it you know it was a it was my first experience with a co-op situation right so in order to get a show you had to volunteer at the station three hours a week doing work there for a semester and then they'd give you, and then you'd apply to do a show. You'd have to tell them what kind of show you would do. There was real big lines drawn in the sand about what was commercial. They didn't want you playing stuff that you could hear on other commercial stations. Um, and so, you know, you'd meet weirdos, people who played exclusively Chilean folk music from the 60s. And, you know, they would do a show every week about that. Then you'd get a show and your show is in the dead middle of the night, right? You'd get the two to 4 a.m. shift on a Wednesday night. And, and, that's, and it just is putting in the work. So um, not, not a lot of people have the dedication to do that every week. And so it's competitive up to a point and then it was just who's willing to put in the time and the work. My show was mostly a hip hop show, but I would start every hip hop, sh every show I did with a non hip hop song, a jazz song, a funk song, a soul song. Um, and so Expansions was, it, it's an example of a song I would start my show off with. Not only is it just something I, I loved, but just to sort of make a connection between uh, hip hop music and the, and, the, and the culture and eras that came before it. And is that an example of a song that you pulled from the library at Davis? Yeah, that's something I never knew about until I had pulled that record from the library and was like, oh, this is, 
this is phenomenal. Like, I like My sophomore year of college, I had a show, Xavier had a show, and Jeff had a show. And then Jeff was leaving school, and, and he had been sort of the hip-hop, you know, the hip-hop industry was new then. And so, you know, he was reporting all the hip-hop playlists for the station to all the hip-hop label reps. And when he left, he gave that job to me. And, and being able to do that meant, like, I would get 12 inches of everything that ever came out um you know to to play and and i became the hip-hop uh music director there at the station When I heard that, like, it was like, oh, these guys are on a different level. Like, up until that point, I was really into, like, New York hip-hop and, and some L.A. stuff, Ice-T and N.W.A. and whatever. Freestyle Fellowship was like, oh, lyricists and jazz. And you could hear them going to a deeper place, but with these lyrical skills. And that was sort of my, uh, the trigger for me to get into that world, which is what's happening in Berkeley with Souls of Mischief, uh, Berkeley, Oakland, what's happening with my own crew at Soul Sides, lyricism, basically the birth of backpack hip hop. I love that you use that phrase, birth of, of backpack rap. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's, it's very true, right? They inspired far side they inspired i mean soul sides crew and in a, in a lot of ways they i think i guess i'm stealing oliver wang's language from his review but it's like that post gangster la you know uh energy that they were bringing and, and saying like we're yeah we grew up in the same area but this isn't the only image you can present to the world yeah i mean and it's you know it's quite literally backpack rap because souls of mischief hyro are selling tapes out of their backpack on Telegraph Avenue. Like that's why it's called backpack rap. Like 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 they are literally like they are literally selling their tapes out of backpacks and hopping on skateboards and like that's why it's called backpack rap. And Freestyle Fellowship wasn't that, but by extension they sort of got labeled that because it was all about it was less about the music and more about the words and the way they were saying it. That record to whom it may concern, it's one of the more transformative albums of, of, of my memory. Like, it got me into not only lyricism, but the way hip hop could speak in a, in a different way than NWA could about some of the issues going on in LA and, 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 and by extension everywhere else, right? I mean, Seven Seal to me is just great because I think Mike and I is a genius. Running but naked, hysterical in the flames, miracles never claim captive, devious, dubious, dubious, doomed, damned in hell, forever jump back, you crack, crack, pepper, suffer heavy consequences in a harsh, harsh environmental blend, you're wrinkled and whacked up, rear. We used to listen to that in the studio and just trying to follow the lyrics with our fingers, right? And then there's another track on that album, We Will Not Tolerate, that was used on their next album, but as an acapella, which is just about police brutality. And it's this like defiant poem, essentially. And, and that album, it wasn't well distributed. And so 93, 94, 95, when all those like AOL and Prodigy, like, con you know, CompuServe, like I was on the Prodigy uh, chat rooms, message boards, and in the hip hop ones, really, really deep and heavy. I must have dubbed that album for a hundred people all around the country. Cause I'd say, oh, I have this. And if you want it, I'll dub it for you. Um, send me two, two blank Maxell XL2 gold tapes one for me and one I'll put the album on and send it back to you. Uh, and I must've done that at least a hundred times. Um, but yeah, that album was incredible. In college is when I started to write about music. And so, um, you know, I was writing about the Freestyle Fellowship and the LA underground scene and 
um, writing about what was happening in the Bay, writing what was happening, you know, all, all the stuff that I loved. Um, but Freestyle Fellowship was, was, was one of my favorites. By that time, me, Jeff, Josh, Xavier, Tom, uh, Latif, again, and Benj, we had we had formed a, an indie rap label called Soul Signs. Me and Jeff were the only two non-artists on that label. But at that time, we were writing for magazines. Jeff more prominently than I was. I was just getting started. And all the hip-hop shows in the Bay Area started a coalition called the Bay Area uh, hip hop coalition. We we would basically we wanted to flex our clout with the labels to make sure if you're going to send a record to one of us, you have to send it to all of us. If you want your record to chart, then you have to bring your artist to the bay. So I'm on I'm on different fronts. I'm, I have this radio show. I've got this record label click. I'm writing for magazines. There was a little competitiveness between what was happening with Soul Sides and Hyro, but Hyro is definitely deeper in the game on it. But and Dell was out, but when Souls of Mischief got signed, it was like one of our own made it. Yo, what's up? This is Tajay of the Mighty Souls of Mischief crew. I'm chilling with my man Festo, my man A Plus, and my man Oh, you know he's dope. Yeah. And right now, you know, we're just maxing in the studio. We're hailing from East Oakland, California, and um, sometimes it gets a little hectic out there. But right now, you know, we gonna up you on how we just chill. Down the seven digits, call up Bridget, her man's a midget. We got signed to Jot, and then that first single came out with, I think it was blue vinyl, and it's got the Hyro logo on it, and the stickers they were being sent. Like, we were so proud, like, and, and we just, even despite the competitiveness, we knew they were at a different level, and they just, it was great. It was just like, it was like a, a proud Bay Area moment where we, all of us in the Bay, were just like one of our own from the backpack world made it you know yeah i'm gonna let you know yeah i'll let you know yeah i'm letting niggas know when i graduated college i was freelancing for magazines and it was a really good i mean there's rap magazines popping up all over but my first cover story i ever wrote was in 1996 for rap pages magazine Sheena Lester was the editor, but she had left. And Dreamhampton was sort of the uh, interim uh, editor at the time. Okay, real quick, Dreamhampton. She's best known recently for directing the Surviving R. Kelly docuseries. Uh, She's also led efforts to reform the criminal justice system, written prolifically, raised pretty compelling theories about Shakespeare being a woman, One of the great pieces of of rap journalism from the 90s is her piece on Tupac called Hellraiser, which was written in 1994, put out in The Source. It reads like you're in the car with Tupac, sensing his paranoia, seeing injustice through his eyes and and his just inability to stand for injustice in any situation. I I, I really, really was affected by it. Uh, And it kind of shows how she was able to communicate and convey um, the importance of hip hop in that era. That's dream. Now back to Joseph. I got assigned to do a story on the Roots. It was not only my first cover story, but it was the Roots' first cover story. And I flew to Philadelphia and I and I spent a day interviewing the roots. That night, I mean Amir and I, Questlove and I just hit it off. And he knew my byline before I showed up. Like he was a rap magazine nerd. And that made that made me feel a certain way where I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, we ended up hanging out. He brought me back to his place where he lived with like six or seven other people. And uh, as I remember his room vividly. It was fucking horribly messy. But we just sat and talked for like four or five hours. He had just met D'Angelo. 
And, and when they met, they recorded for four hours, Amir on drums, D'Angelo on keys and vocals. They just jammed. And he played me that. And it's like three or four in the morning. And, and then we're hungry, so we ordered cheesesteaks. And, and we, it was summer, and it was really hot. And so we like sat on a stoop in South Philly and like ate cheesesteaks. And then he called a cab for me to get home, but I had to be back the next day to do the follow-up interview. But I just, I spent this time with him and I wrote this story. And again, I'm like a backpack indie hip hop kid. And I started to draw these demarcation lines in my head between what was real hip hop and what was like commercial hip hop, which was starting to really be commercial at the time. And the roots to me were like real hip hop. And I wrote this story from sort of that mind state. And Dream calls me up to edit the story. And she's just like, no, 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 no. She's like, what, do you, what is this? Because <laughs> my whole intro is like, the roots are real hip hop. AZ and DMX are not real hip hop. And she just, she set me straight. She's like, who are you to, to be the gatekeeper? She's like, you're not the gatekeeper. We're not gatekeepers. We just report, we observe, we participate. But like, she's like, hip hop is not what you say it is. She's like, hip hop is whatever little black and brown kids say it is. She's like, if today they say it's yellow and blue and tomorrow it's purple and green, then tomorrow it's purple and green. And, and it was such an influential, eye-opening moment for me. Uh, it, it just was like, oh shit, I'm a visitor. I'm, I'm not a creator. This is, it just was, it was so just tremendously influential to, to get me to see that hip hop was black and there was value in commercial hip hop. There wasn't any virtue in underground hip hop necessarily just by being underground and music was going to, the hip hop was going to change and just enjoy it, be along for the ride and, and try to understand where it's coming from. And, and so I rewrote my piece and, and I still was a, a, a staunch supporter of groups like De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest, but, but I started to, to remove that protective shell, I thought, that wasn't allowing me to enjoy things that were more commercial. I still didn't love the bad boy, shiny suit era as much. Uh, I still had my favorites, but I re- recognized them as my, as my favorites, not everyone else's. The instamatic focal point bringing damage to your borough uh-huh. Be some brothers from the east with the beats that be thorough Got the solar gravitation so I'm bound to pull it I gets down like brothers are found Ducking from bullets uh-huh. Gun control means using both hands in my land yeah. Where it's all about the cautious living uh-huh. Migrating to a higher form of consequence Compliments uh-huh. are struggling That shouldn't be notable Man, every word I say should be a hip-hop I picked that song because it's very emblematic of the hip-hop that I really loved It's one of my favorite songs the remix is one of my favorite tracks. Uh, that album was like my soundtrack in 96. And De La was representative of, of the, who I deemed real hip hop. Um, and then that moment with Dream and that story and just being awoken to this idea, like it's okay to like the other stuff because it's all, it's all legit. It's all heartfelt. We are not gatekeepers. We are observers, which is why I think I sent you a J song as well. Um, did I? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I was gonna. I was going to. The flip side of that is that's when I started to appreciate Jay Z. You know. Oh, okay. Right. Like I can like this. Like this is. Let me. Let me. Let me get get out of my own way and just really listen and see, appreciate the skill of it. Right. Um, but to me, Stakes Is High is like a perfect example of what kind of hip hop I really just loved. Like the production, the music. Um, De La is a really interesting story. Like they were one of the first hip hop groups I ever just absolutely became obsessed with. And even to this day, what they did as teenagers on Three Feet High and Rising and, and just some of the, just the creative output of it, the language they created, the way they rapped, the way they made music, the way they sampled the artwork. They put out a 12 inch that was a three-sided record, which I've never seen before. And they did this in 89 where the, the A side is a regular record and the B side was double grooved. So depending on what side of the groove you drop the needle on, it revealed a whole different set of songs. 
and who was doing that in 89? Like nobody in hip hop, nobody. Who's done it since? Nobody. Like it's, it's, a, it's insane how creative they are. And for me, um, they just kept getting better and better. I think that smiling in public is against the law. Cause love don't get you through life no more. It's who you know and how you son. And how you getting in and who the man holding he up. And how was the skin and how high you what up how I heard you caught a body. Seem like every man and woman shared a life with John God. But they ain't organized. Mixing crimes with life and zines. Taking the big scout route and niggas no doubt. Better than they know they daughters and they sons. Yo, people go through pain and still don't gain positive contact. In 96, it was a departure for them, right? Because they weren't working with uh, DJ Prince Paul, right? And then they had Dilla come on to produce this. So what about it was uh, production-wise? Like, did you appreciate that change? Did you think that, uh, did you know who Dilla was at the time? Like, what, what was that time for you? Yeah, I mean, I knew who Dilla was because of the uh, Far Side album and because of, of the Daylaw production and, and because of Amir. He, Amir put me up on Dilla really early i remember reviewing the second far side album for rap pages and and calling out dillo's production in particular for being just a, a different sound it had its roots in sample based hip-hop but it was just at a different syncopation and what we now know is chop right like just the way he chopped beats um and on that daylight record i mean i i think i always will have a sweet spot for the Prince Paul De La relationship, and I probably didn't understand it at the time why they wanted to go in a different direction, but but just it was starting to converge like De La and the most deaf sound and this Dilla sound, and it's just even going back and listening to that album now, it's just it's incredibly strong, and and he, and, and hearing these guys that at what they must have been uh, 26, 27 years old at the time feeling burnt out and just over it and and still playful and still creative i think the artwork for that album too was different for them they used a photograph uh an eric johnson photograph versus their other albums that was sort of photography design and animation it was black and white i think it was a conscious decision on their part to step away from the colorful de la soul that they had become i mean they've always wrapped about serious topics even on the first album but like that album felt like you know they it felt like men rapping right it felt like they had grown you know even the lyrics pause and drops on that on stakes as high is just is like it, it, it resonates today man life can get all up in your ass baby you better work it out now let me tell you what it's all about a skin not considered equal a meteor has more right than my people who be wasting time screaming who they've hated that's why the native tongues has officially been reinstated what was the jay-z song by the way that you were going to put on the list uh i think probably brooklyn's finest Jigga, Jigga, I was resistant to Jay-Z on that first album because I was in the backpack shit and not New York street music and, and listening to De La and how they sort of slowed their own rhyme style down. Jay sort of was the logical extreme of that and uh, consciously was was that was his rap style Brooklyn's finest um you know just with biggie on it and it samples ecstasy from the ohio players and it's like such a great sample like if i were objective in my head at the time you know that that's that's it's hip-hop why would i have ever thought it was anything else where you from so, so you moved from writing to producing uh, in the 2000s. And, and can you walk me through like your transition from writer to, to producer? Yeah, so I was writing for magazines um, really through 2003-ish. Um, in 1999, I moved to New York City. I took a dot-com job 
because I was not making money as a freelance writer. I was living at home. My byline had, had, had notoriety within the rap media industry. And I had a, a, a constellation of friends around the country. Uh, one of the editors I was working at at a magazine had, had started an editorial platform. And he's like, I'll pay you $75,000 a year and I'll move you across the country to be my hip hop editor. And I was like, amazing. And so I moved to New York and it was incredible. Um, and then after CD Now, I worked at uh, for Russell Simmons at, a, at his dot com, 360 Hip Hop. And that was an incredible experience because the team um, that was assembled was like an all-star team of hip-hop journalism. Um, and, and unfortunately, the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. And so I went back to freelancing. And then post 9-11, the media industry just started to shrink up. And there wasn't any opportunities really to make a living. And so I was really sort of almost at rock bottom, just like out of money, in debt, not sure what I was gonna do for a career, not loving writing anymore. And then I heard MTV was looking for someone to work in their news department as a writer. And so in 2003, I came in to try out. I came in for a day and then I came in for two days and then they brought me in for a week. So I started working at MTV and I was, I was really excited because MTV News and Docs and I was writing for, um, I was doing online news reporting and my beat was hip hop, but also music industry stuff. And I was good at it. A story I wrote for online would get turned into a news hit. About six months into, into my reporting job at mtvnews.com, I pitched a story for a video segment. It was on The Roots and they were recording their new album. They had bought a building in, in Philly, South Philly, and they had turned it into this nightclub that they operated 24 hours a day. And uh, especially after hours, they would invite all the strippers in Philly. And I did a story down there where I went to go cover this thing that they were doing. And, and every day they'd have different people dropping in. So like one day it'd be Common and Erica Badu and some new, new guy, you know, named James Poyser that they had brought in the fold. And the next day it's Jill Scott and, you know, whoever. And, and so I did a story on that. And, um, and that was my sort of first intro into producing. And I loved it a lot. And, and I was like, I want to do this now. And my bosses at MTV really supported me. And what I liked about it is that, one, I was getting really tired of writing. I just didn't have the passion for it anymore. And I was like, what, what, is this, what does this career path look like when I'm 40? And I realized I'd be 40 years old still reviewing records for a magazine. And, and I just didn't want that for my future. And MTV offered me this opportunity to tell stories, but visually. And, and so I, I pitched a piece. Another producer helped me with that piece and taught me what a producer does. And I just got addicted to it. I, I mean, it clicked for me. It was like, oh, this is storytelling, but visual. And there was such a thrill about seeing something I worked on visually on television. And then six months after that, I, I pitched a TV show, my first show, My Block. It utilized all my skills, right? It utilized my ability to storytell it. It utilized my ability to, to see what was coming around the bend. It, it tapped into my love of underground hip hop and regional scenes and I, I got a chance to put UGK and Pimp C and, uh, and Pimp and Bun uh, and Mike Jones and Paul Wall and talk about Syrup and DJ Screw in a half hour TV show on MTV. Were you familiar with like still tipping? Like, is that something that you had your ear to the street? You knew about that music? And that kind of led you to go there? Or like, how did you kind of choose Houston first? Houston first, because I, I, I love chopped and screwed music. And, um, and I, and I love UGK. And I heard Still Tippin' on a mix CD. I forget. 
uh, Michael Watts mix CD because um, I was still buying like mix CDs from Houston and regional hip hop, right? Like the underground hip hop from different regions. And I was like, God, this song is catchy as shit. And then I heard Diplo play it at a party in New, in New York. And then I, I went to the Bay for something and I heard it in the Bay. And this is like end of 2004, maybe. And I was like, oh, this is the Houston hip hop song. This song is going to break. It wasn't hard to prognosticate, but when you heard a regional song from one specific area being played in other sort of more regional areas, that was a sign that that song was going to break. And then I was like, if that song breaks, like then the whole scene breaks. And so that's what I, I based the show on. MTV had this thing called Hip Hop Week. And every day in that week would have a different story on, on a hip hop story. But it had to be unified by a theme. So my block started as five Houston hip hop stories um, that would run each day in a week. And at the end, we'd comp it into a show, we'd call it my block. And so one story we did was on Mike Jones and Still Tippin. A second story we did was on UGK. We went to the, the prison that Pimp C was being housed in. And we did a story on Bon B and, and the free Pimp C movement and they're just their legacy. We got to interview Pimp C in jail, which was an incredible experience. They are such a unique group like they grew up in a vacuum really port arthur texas and and bun b similar to my relationship with amir i became close with bun when i did my block in 2005. he is an extraordinary individual one of the smartest people i've ever met in my life and has all this love in his heart and all this wisdom and all this lived experience and everyone respects him, and he still will fuck you up if you ever cross him. He's just an extraordinary individual. It, it was fun for me to see UGK become more widely recognized. And I think that album that Chopping Blades is from is partly the first realization of that, right? Even though we all know some of the classics from before, like a lot of, like that was the first time where it was like, oh, Here's here's a perfect example of what these guys can do together. Now when I turn my knock up and banging your block up without picking my clock up, I'm raising my stock up. I got haters on lock up. Where they slanging rock up and banging Mac up daily seven. Cranking my pack up. Now ain't no stopping when the top start dropping. Head fat, fat rapping. Your head back capping in a black, black, backing with a bop in the face. I always think of the line from Last Call by Kanye. It's a random line, but he's like, nice was Bun B when I met him at the Source Awards. Girl he had with him, ass could have won the Horse Awards. It's obviously like Kanye's humor, but that that uh, recognition of Bun B. And so many artists call him out as like significant and important to them, you know, whether it was like early Drake talking about going and working with Bun. Um, so many people have called him yeah, out. I mean, Drake isn't Drake without Bun's cosign. No. Like, like no, really, no. and and, no. and um, a couple of funny things I'll say about Bun. So before my block, in about in two thousand three or two thousand four, I had caught wind somehow that he was a big movie fan, and so I did a story where I had him rank his top ten Criterion Collection DVD titles. And it's like, who, what rapper can you ever do that? And and I hadn't met him. This was just over the phone, and he was very nice to me over the phone. And then when I reached out to him about doing this Houston stuff for my blog, he, he was like, okay, cool. And, you know, he helped us get permission from Pimp C to go and do this prison interview. And, and he connected us with Pimp's wife and his, and his mother, you know, and then we, then we interviewed Bun. And he gave us the address. And I remember driving out there and we're driving. And it's like this like suburban gated community and there's a van in front of us. We realize the van in front of us is going into the same cul-de-sac that Bun had given us the address to. And we turn around the corner and the van goes to this corner house in the cul-de-sac. And meanwhile, on the other corner is this guy in a, a, a red Dickies 
outfit watering the lawn and then the woman in the van is a soccer mom and her kids pop out with soccer balls and she's bringing the kids back from soccer practice and she's like hi bernard and he's like hey miss johnson or whatever her name was and the crew that i'm with you know who aren't as well versed in hip-hop at the time were like that's bun b and i'm like yeah he's just his nice neighbor and his wife like cooked us uh, spread like the like the very southern thing is you can't come to our house unless you have you eaten like here's I just deep fried a turkey and here's all the fixings and like it just was it was incredible experience like just so warm and generous. When that show came out, one of the things that they realized is whenever it aired, it drew in about 350,000 viewers every time, which for MTV on cable at that time is, is, a, is not an insignificant amount. They, they could put it on at 3 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning or 11 a.m. Whenever they would repeat the show, get that number of viewers. And so they were like, okay, can you do another one? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do another one. Pick a city. And I was like, Memphis, three, six mafia. They're having a moment, right? They're about to be in this movie and uh, hustle and flow. And so we did three, six mafia and eight ball and MJG. you know Ball and MJG doing a song with Outkast was just so it was just great to see like southern rap regionalism Houston Memphis New Orleans Atlanta Miami we spent a lot of time doing shows in the south and the you know early 2000s music that came out of the south in the early 2000s it's just incredible music One of my favorite episodes of My Block that we ever did was My Block the Bay because it was me getting to go back home as an MTV producer. You know, when we did segments on E40 and Too Short, Lil B has a cameo before he was known as Lil B. He was still part of the pack and the pack hadn't even released Vans yet. So like, but I, but but he shows up at this shoot and E40 was like, these are my, are, are, sorry, Too Short showed up and he's like, these are my new kids that I discovered, the pack. And I've got, I still got the photo of Little B with like these stunner shades on. And it was funny because going dumb and hyphy music was real big. And, and to be able to shine a spotlight on that and bring it to a national stage was so just incredible. I hadn't, I hadn't been living in the Bay. So like the idea of Ghost, Ghost Ride the Whip was like not something I would see in New York, but when we were just shooting in Oakland, like that shit was real on the streets. Like people did that without knowing there were cameras anywhere. And it was just, it was just an amazing experience. Yeah, you know about that. Real players. The real ones. I got to nerd out on a mainstream TV show, on a big cable channel. And, and, and meanwhile, I'm learning how to direct and produce and to edit and to shoot. And um, it's a different skill set. And I'm getting paid to do it, right? So my experience at MTV was like going to grad school, like getting paid to do it. And, and I'll always be thankful for that experience.
well, let's take it to, to 2008 and the, the, the election uh, and your the coverage that you guys did with uh, the presidential candidates and kind of how you cross paths with Obama. Yeah, so I was working at MTV and after doing my block, I transitioned full time into uh, producing. And, um, you know, look, I came into that career a little later in my life than the other people I was working with. My boss, who knew my byline, uh, this guy named Ocean McAdams, uh, changed my life. Um, he brought me in and, and he encouraged me to become a producer. And I remember asking one day, I'm like, why did you give me a shot? I didn't come through the normal path of, you know, he's like, because you know story. He's like, you know how to put a story together. And it's easier to teach you how to learn the technical things than it would be someone technically proficient to teach them how to tell a story. And so, you know, I accelerated pretty quickly through the ranks at MTV News and Docs. And I started doing shows, not only my block, but other of the A-list sort of interview shows that MTV was doing. And so by the time 2007 came, um, I had three years under my belt of proving myself. And, um, and they offered me to work on the Choose or Lose campaign around the 2008 election. I ended up becoming senior producer on a bunch of town hall forums that we did with the candidates. Now, this is something I grew up watching on MTV, Choose or Lose. Like, it, you know, it was a dream. And actually, very early on, you know, Obama was my guy from, I think from the time he showed up at the 2004 convention and the, the red, blue, purple speech, I was like, if that guy ever runs, he's my guy. It's funny, I don't think people remember, but in 2007, the, the clear front runner was gonna be Hillary Clinton or, or John Edwards. Most of the people I worked with, and most of the people that I knew were, were in it for Hillary. He was a long shot in the summer of 2007. But I, I, he was still my, he was my guy. And so I was, you know, leapt at the opportunity to be able to produce his town hall. It was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We were there for the week prior. Doing taped production segments is different than doing something live. And, and these were live. And it was my first experience doing something live other than the VMA Awards pre-show. And I always say the role of a producer and, and or a director is you're responsible for everything from conception to completion. And you have to make choices. Everything's a choice. When I was uh, producing that special, I had to choose the entrance music for what Obama would walk out to when we introduced him. And I picked Touch the Sky from Kanye. I gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'ma touch the sky. Gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die. It's such a great music sync for me because one, it was live, so we didn't have to clear it. And I was like, great, we're going to do this. The Chicago angle, the, um, the, the Curtis Mayfield angle, the upli uplifting feeling of that song. And so the clip where I think Gideon introduces Obama and he walks out and then I press play on Touch the Sky. It's just, it's just, it's just a personal cool moment for me. And, and I, and I feel like somewhere deep down, he probably appreciated that. When I was uh, in grad school in Chicago, we went to Cabrini Green and, and obviously it had, buildings have been knocked down and it was in the late, in the early 2010s. And uh, the guy who was guiding us through said, Oh, uh, Curtis Mayfield grew up over there uh, yeah. in Cabrini Green. And so uh, I always think of move on up. like the, the touch the sky is not just Lupe and Kanye, but it's also Curtis and that Chicago symbolism. So exactly. beautiful, that's a great selection. Yes, 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 who's on third? Lupe still like loop in the third. Here like here till I'm bitter on the curb. Peach fuzz buzz, but bit on the verge. Let's slow it down like river on the serve. Bottle shaped body like Mrs. Butterworth. But before you Once he became the candidate and then um, was running for uh, against John McCain, we did another one with McCain. We did an interview with Obama the weekend before the election in 2008. All the polls showed that he was going to win. We did it in Henderson, Nevada on the Saturday or Sunday before the election. And I have a picture from that day after our shoot um, that is probably the moment when my parents, after many, many years, finally felt proud of all the choices I had made in my life that they never understood. And 
that photo is still my dad's desktop on his computer. Every December, my dad goes to India and he printed out 50 copies of that photo and gave them out to his friends in India. It's like, look, that's my son with the president. It was a really uh, extraordinary experience. It's how I met my wife. She worked at MTV and she was um, a hair and makeup stylist and was the only other person on my floor that was into Obama from the very beginning. Uh, my friend, uh, Yossi Sargent, who worked with um, Obama's campaign on all the art around it. And so he would hit me with all the Shepard Ferry posters. So I was, I was the guy in the building with the Shepard Ferry Obama Hope posters. And so like celebrities would stop by my office looking for wanting to get a poster. And I still have like 25 of them in a roll somewhere in my, in my apartment. But it was an incredible experience for me. Like um, the idea of a black president is not anything I thought I would see in my lifetime. I know there's a lot of revisionist history right now and, and he's not above critique. But, but I think that symbolism is so important and was so important. And you can see how important of an impact he had by, by, the, by the intensity of the reaction that's happened since. 100%, 100%. And I mean, you, your old friend Jeff Chang has made the argument that hip hop elevated him, right? And the hip hop generation in many ways, I mean, my dad will tell me this now, I was for Hillary until you and your brother convinced me right? Obama. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's a truth there. Uh, and, and there's a way that we as kids growing up in this country, accessing this culture, feeling a sense of connection to others who looked very different to us, uh, were able to understand and get behind an Obama presidency. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm just riffing here. I'm, this is not a basis in, based in research or anything. But my feeling is, when they say Obama was the first hip hop president. Like he was, it wasn't like he was, he was a dad. He was, he was, he's a cornball. He grew up in, in, in the, in the, in the half generation just before hip hop would have been right. But there's an entire generation of people who grew up with hip hop, grew up seeing black faces in positions of power, um, learning the messages being expressed in the music and comfortable with the idea of black leadership. And, and, and that, that's what I think they mean when they say hip-hop elevated Obama into presidency. And I don't think we should ever forget how important that is. And th- this, is the, this is the thing Ta-Nehisi got about Obama at the end, which I don't think, you know, people like Cornell West expressed their frustration with Obama, but he wasn't going to be the guy who fixed it all. He wasn't the Black liberation candidate. But he was one small part of a journey towards that right and even now people mistakenly think he's gonna save us somehow and he's 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 never been that guy but we should never under underestimate or undervalue the importance that his presidency had in getting us to a place where we where we need to get Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to my first guest, Joseph Patel. You can follow him at JazzBeezy on most social media platforms. Follow the podcast as well, South Asians Love Rap on Instagram. You'll be able to find a Spotify playlist with everything you heard today, and stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Akash Pandey. Theme music by Dust Collector. Cover art by Aaron Zonka. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope to see you soon.